We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We are living in an overstimulated world, and the resulting stress impacts our physical and mental health. It can stand in the way of our happiness. Joining us today to discuss how we can retrain our brain and break the stress-anxiety cycle is Dr. Frank Wallace, a renowned psychologist, researcher, and counselor. Dr. Lawless is the co-founder of the Lawless and Peavy PNP Centers for Psychoneurological Change. He is a chief content advisor for The Dr. Phil Show and is the author of many books, including Retraining the Brain, a 45-Day Plan to Conquer Stress and Anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Lawless. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. I look forward to uh, having some very meaningful conversation about this very important topic. And as do I, doctor, because this is something that is very close to my heart because it's actually something that I experienced in a very profound way in my life. And in your book, A 45-Day Plan to Conquer Stress and Anxiety, you report that it's estimated that more than 90% of people will have a bout with depression at some point in their life, and that 70% of adults say they experience anxiety daily. Those are alarming statistics, doctor. What do you believe is happening today that is causing these mental health issues? Well, for one thing, our uh, timing is all off. In the earlier days of mankind, we usually went by the sun so that we would deal with uh, problems of the day while the sun is up. And then uh, consequently, when the sun was down, we would have a rest period, a restoration period. So what we have now is with the discovery of electricity and uh, the modern conveniences, we now work probably closer to 24-7. So we have fewer and fewer hours to restore ourselves. And then, of course, the bigger problem is that we don't get the important resolutions of conflict and stress through our sleep. We have enormous problems with regard to sleep disorders. So, Doctor, in a perfect world, how should a quote-unquote normal brain work? What would be considered optimal brain function? Well, I have a particular word that I like to use. That's called rhythm, rhythm balance. Uh, And that is where uh, various uh, parts of your body that have rhythms, such as heartbeat and breathing and spinal fluid circulation and uh, uh, brain patterns all work in synchronicity. So that uh, it's the variability Uh, that uh, really is healthy. So we don't stick in one particular status forever. In other words, we we have uh, certain brain patterns that we use when we're dealing with uh, serious problems or problem solving and relationship uh, dealing. And then we have certain kinds of wrist cycles that our brain is basically in, in a rest issue. So what I see as the disharmony is the lack of rhythmic coordination uh, so that even within your brain, there are certain parts of your brain that's going fast and certain parts of the brain that's going slow. So you have a lot of missing 
connections or coordination uh, within yourself. You're not very effective in terms of uh, dealing with the present problem because you're uh, you don't have all your uh, what we call maybe senses around you that can help you. There was an interesting study that uh, often referred to that's called Secrets of Champions, and in that particular study, they studied the what we call the sympathetic and the uh, parasympathetic systems of the body and the mind. Uh, sympathetic uh, stages has to do with basically being aroused, having high levels of coordination, high, high levels of reactivity. And in, these, in this state, you, your heart rate is going fast, your eyes are dilated, you're basically very uh, on key in terms of where to focus your attention. Uh, and parasympathetic is the rest state. Uh, where you basically rest in a resting state. Your, your brain is what we call in the alpha state, and uh, you're basically refreshing yourself. And what we find is that, that if you take the top 1% of athletes and military officers uh, that the study employed uh, and measured their sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, what they found is that uh, pretty much all of them relied on a primarily parasympathetic level uh, with uh, some levels of sympathetic system. Uh, what's important about this is they were all very well coordinated. So they had this, uh, they employed both the restorative state as well as having some focus on the problem. Uh, and this is also true for other kind of military exercises. So basically you have these kinds of activities that you can employ that will restore your mental and physical activity. So Dr. Lawless, when the rhythm is off and, and it's not in sync, is the result what you write about something that you coined a stress storm? Is that what would happen? And, and if so, what is a stress storm? Well, it's basically, as you said, uh, it's a disharmony. It's a disharmony within the body. And uh, you have a uh, state of fear, and, and that's what your brain is uh, focusing on. And it's not allowing you to have the uh, sense of enjoyment uh, and uh, re restoration that we all need on, on a daily basis. And so this is something that's very physical that's occurring in the brain. Because I know when someone goes through... Um, what they may call an anxiety attack or an episode of of um, being stressed out, they tend to beat themselves up because they think it's something that they have a lot more control over in an immediate way. But this is something really physical that's happening, isn't it? They're not doing something wrong. Uh, exactly. I, I like the way you express that. It's, it is a physical reaction at the brain level that uh, radiates or uh, goes down throughout the body. And so you have a total reaction of stress, and it is mostly physical in that sense of the word. Basically something that uh, happens normally, and uh, consequently you have some uh, way of, of dealing and managing it. And so, Doctor, when this happens, the result can be something as what you call a usual mental lockup. What is it that's happening that keeps us stuck, that locks us up mentally? Well, it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, and that is that you, there's a part of your brain that's called a singular gyrus, for example. And this is kind of a coordinator within your brain. And so what happens when you get overwhelmed, the brain basically starts uh, just uh, going around in circles without reaching any kind of uh, solution. So it's a state of anxiety. Uh, but it has specific kinds of dynamics that uh, interferes with your ability to uh, think outside the box, as we say, and find problem-solving approaches. So when we're living in this stressed-out state or we're experiencing these mental lockups or stress storms, it isn't just an emotional problem, is it? I mean, things can happen to our body on a physical level that can lead to various types of diseases, can't they? Absolutely, and this is especially true for nutrition. Uh, let me plug uh, a part of that in, in the sense that uh, our food uh, creates certain kinds of metabolism in our brain. 
for example, I'm a big proponent of uh, uh, anti-sugar. Sugar is poison to our brain. And so consequently, when we consume too much sugar, we actually are destroying part of our brain cells, and just like uh, alcohol and other kinds of drugs. So what happens is that basically we, we have less restorative powers in our brain and consequently uh, can deteriorate. Doctor, I'm middle-aged, and when I was growing up in science class, we were basically taught that your brain is set, and then as you age, it starts to deteriorate, and or if it's damaged, that there really wasn't a whole lot that could be done about it. But now, science is showing that the brain is not permanently hardwired, and that it can change. So can you explain to us what this science says about neuroplasticity and how we can benefit from this research? Why is this so exciting? Well, this is very exciting because, like you said, up until about 20 years so years ago, uh, we considered when the brain it was injured, it couldn't repair itself. But that is absolutely not true. It can repair itself, and it has this amazing ability of having other channels that we can uh, use in our brain to basically uh, do the same thing. For example, uh, people who have strokes and have part of their brains destroyed uh, can uh, have secondary uh, avenues for speech. And they can le- learn how to speak again. They can learn how to walk again. And so this plasticity uh, manifests itself throughout life. Uh, there is a repair mechanism that, uh, that we can influence. Although we consider new news, this is something that actually the ancient Uh, medicine people used to uh, engage. So doctor, for someone who's experienced some type of a a mental health issue, in order for real change to occur, what has to happen? How can we create those new circuits, those new pathways? Well, uh, a lot of these circuits uh, of repair uh, are old and a lot of them are brand new. For example, uh, uh, I have to tell you a short story here. Uh, I was a clinical uh, professor of orthopedic surgery for 12 years at Southwestern Medical School, and my specialty was pain management. And uh, I tried many avenues of helping these people who were failures uh, from surgery and other kinds of medical technology. And I went to a a workshop uh, for shamanism. When I asked about the the, uh, management of pain, they told me to beat a drum. Now, that sounds really ridiculous, mm-hmm. but I tried it, and it had a profound effect on, on um, pain problems. So being a scientist, I wanted to know why. Why would this simple technique make a big difference? And what I found is that uh, the beating of the drum in this particular tempo made a big difference in the brain patterns and brain mechanisms. The brain relaxed and and apparently induce some what we call endorphin flow, which are uh, internal pain modulators. And so what uh, happens is that uh, this old ancient technique kind of started uh, a ball rolling down the hill, you might say. And uh, we we found that uh, uh, sound uh, had a particular important uh, impression on the brain. And so from there, we start looking at where do these sounds come from. And one of the uh, important discoveries that I made was that much of it had to do with music or rather the underlying rhythm of music. And so that started a whole line of research in terms of what rhythms produced what changes in the brain. We find that smells, aromas also will excite the brain and actually uh, create different uh, patterns. We find that uh, visual symbols also can can help uh, uh, rhythm movement, like in dance and uh, yoga movement and so forth like that will also change the brain. So there's a lot of, of influence that we can do uh, in our daily lives to make a huge difference in terms of our brain and consequently our whole body function. Doctor, in your book, you shared a story about a woman who had a traumatic experience in her life, and and she went into what you defined as a mental lockup. She was stuck. 
And so many of us experience those types of things. We have a trigger that holds us back. It keeps us stuck in place. And this woman, no matter how hard she tried to break it, she wasn't able to until one day she did something so completely different, you know, something that you would never think she would do. How was this person able to go from being locked down to doing something completely out of character outside of her comfort zone. And and I ask that because there are so many people today that are stuck. And, you know, how can they go from being locked down and, and held down and stuck to taking that leap to doing something that can change their life? Well, you ask a very fascinating question because that's kind of the challenge that we all face is how do we get unstuck? And um, how do we get out of our rhythms? far enough to begin to uh, find new pleasures and new excitement and basically change our life. And uh, we see that every day. On the other, on the other hand, it's, it's still a phenomenon that we, we can't really explain other than there is a uh, decision at one level of, of changing the patterns of our, of our brain. Uh, and, we often teach these uh, uh, to our patients such that they can then begin to uh, discover uh, getting out of their out of their closet we say and begin to experience life for example there's some some breathing techniques that are very profound for a lot of people one has to do with uh, what i call alternate nostril breathing where you uh, spend some time every day uh, just breathing through one nostril and then uh, change it to the other one. And what we what we discovered on the EEG is that this tends to initiate some very active repatterning of your brain uh, from your left on your right, uh, which would probably infer that there's some new creative way of of dealing with uh, with other uh, problems that come up. Your brain basically gives you new uh, gifts where you can learn how to deal with stress in creative ways. Uh, there's also some ways of, uh, like I said, of changing your diet. Just changing your diet will make you think differently, will give you much more optimism, uh, for example, and consequently be able to break out of old patterns. Uh, and then there's uh, exercises doing uh, long walks uh, where you basically be able to uh, uh, get out in nature because nature has its own way of teaching you new ways of dealing with life and perceiving your gifts. So there's several avenues, and some are easier than others for people. Some of these exercises that can really be helpful in how uh, a person like this woman can break out of her shell. It sounds like you take a, a much more natural approach to healing. And for the average person in general, obviously there are cases outside of what I'm asking, but in general, when someone experiences a mental health issue and goes to the doctor, do you think that medications are being prescribed too readily? Well, you, you hit on a real important topic in my uh, in my thoughts, because this is a real problem that we have. Let me give you an example. The uh, symptoms of nearly all problems have to do with attention. And so if you're depressed, you, tend, you lose a lot of your ability to focus and have attention. This is also very, very important in terms of anxiety. Yet one of the major features of, of dealing with especially childhood attentional deficit disorder is using drugs and i think that that is over diagnosed about 75 percent of the time because attention issues have to do with like i said nearly every other diagnosis in the book right. so what is really and with children you don't know the uh, effects of that for example uh, i've read one study in which the the use of ritalin uh, in early uh, children, five years old, actually uh, younger than 23, was basically detrimental to the overall development, developmental of the brain. 
So I think for especially when children that uh, the use of medications that we have no notion of of the after effects will have and in these uh, very, very precious years of development can really have some detrimental effects. So I would caution uh, parents uh, uh, to try some of these more naturalistic approaches rather than going to the pill. We have technology today that really, it, it shows us what's happening within the brain. And when a person goes to the doctor, when they're experiencing a mental health issue, what are some of the tests that should be done? Are scans an important part of making a diagnosis? Well, scans for us are a cornerstone of, of what we uh, do to help determine what's going on in the person. Now, you cannot use scans alone to diagnose a person because the, the brain dynamics can help you exp- understand what's going on, but you really can't. Uh, make a diagnosis strictly on that. But I think that what we find, especially in with regard to the EEG findings, is that uh, we can then be able to differentiate the treatment programs. For example, if you have a person that comes in and they com- they're complaining of depression, uh, they may have a number of different kinds of brain scans that explain that. For example, uh, in one, one pattern, uh, that we see a lot is where you have asymmetry, where one part, where the right part of the brain is more active or less active than the other side. So, uh, in that situation, we want to create exercises and various kinds of stimulation that will even up those uh, areas. And another one, uh, another situation in which uh, you're dealing with. Uh, uh, issues with regard to uh, depression, you, you may want to look at uh, issues uh, that have to do with just generally low levels of activity across all the brain. And that's a situation that uh, uh, would probably need some issues uh, of uh, using some levels of medication for stimulation. The book is Retraining the Brain, a 45-day plan to conquer stress and anxiety. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Lawless and his work, you can visit franklawless.com. Doctor, thank you so much for spending time with us. As I said in the beginning, the statistics are alarming, and the information that you shared with us can be life-changing. So thank you for being here, and thank you for doing such important work. Well, I sure appreciate that, Joan, and uh, uh, good luck to everybody out there. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Do you struggle with what to post on social media? Do you avoid posting because you just don't know what's going to work? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures with a social media simplified tip. Share your knowledge. Posting on social media can be just like a cocktail party. You run into people at the party. You talk about your life. Maybe you tell a few jokes. You catch up on what the family is doing. You show a few photos. And you let people know what you're doing at work. These are all great ideas for posting on social media. Think about your own social media habits. What do you like to see? Give your followers tips and hints they can use. Keep in mind, you can't just sell, sell, sell all the time. You have to educate and inform your followers. And yes, even have a little fun. So remember, in social media, sharing your knowledge is the key to success. If you need help planning your outreach, give us a call. We make social media simple for you and your business. For more information, visit our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Social media simplified by Sue.
safer to your health. Joining us today is Christian Enden, a mental health professional who works as a program coordinator for a rehabilitation facility in Orlando, Florida. He is a mental health advisor for Nothing But Advice. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Joan. Thank you so much for having me. So, Chris, I know that mental health advocacy is so important to you. And with all the people that are suffering with mental illness, there is still a stigma that's attached to these conditions. This can be broken down into two basic areas, a social stigma and a personal stigma. Regarding the social stigma, some of the harmful effects of this stigma include the lack of understanding by family and friends, fewer work opportunities, and even bullying. What can someone do to overcome or cope with this type of discrimination? Great question, Joan. And sadly, like you said, there is such a huge stigma associated with mental health disorders and even the treatment of it and, you know, getting treatment for it. So what someone can do to overcome, you know, this type of discrimination and to cope with it is to start with advocating for themselves. And, you know, that advocacy involves getting help, speaking up and not being afraid to just go out there and say, hey, I need help. Because if they don't advocate for themselves and us as mental health professionals advocate for them, sadly, we're going to make slow to no progress when it comes to, you know, alleviating this stigma associated with mental health disorders. Chris, you just recommended that we become our own advocate. But unfortunately, the second stigma that I mentioned, that personal stigma, that's the way that we view our own mental illness. Do you think that's what holds us back from getting the help we need? Sadly, yes, because people who do suffer from these disorders, they're afraid to speak up because of backlash from family, from friends, even from job. They feel like, you know, their job or employment could be suffering and they could be retaliated against. But I think if one or two people just start to speak up, it becomes this snowball effect. And by that, people become more confident to speak up and know that it's okay. Because if they don't start speaking up for themselves and, you know, they just have this stigma so attached to them, like I said, we're going to make very little progress. I think we need a few people, and that includes us as professionals too, to just speak up for these people if they cannot advocate for themselves just yet to kind of help out with that personal stigma. Why do you think this is so important, Chris, that we get involved doing this? Oh, man, it's um, it's so important because people just, we as people just need help. We're so afraid to speak up and, you know, ask for help that it holds us back from doing so much. And that uh, that includes achieving just optimal wellness and, and health. Um, when we bottle this stuff up, we see over and over again in the media um, and people in our own lives, how just holding this stuff in is so detrimental to our own well-being and health. And it leads us to do stuff that's, that's just not healthy. So I think it's so important to remove the stigma so more and more people can, you know, achieve this help. Chris, what can we all do to help other people, to help those that are suffering? I think, Joan, it just goes back to that advocacy and even, you know, letting people know that it's okay. We kind of have to look at it, and I like to use this analogy of comparing mental disorders to, you know, physical disorders. If we have a cold or a flu, we're going to go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm not feeling well. I need help. And that's okay. But for mental health, sadly, it's the opposite. People are afraid to say, hey, I'm suffering from, from a disorder such as depression, anxiety, say, They're afraid to speak up for themselves, but they need to realize that it's okay. Because like I said, if you have a cold or a flu, you're going to go to the doctor and ask for help. It's the same with depression, anxiety, all these mental disorders that we see are so prevalent in our society. And I think, you know, the problem sometimes lies that people say to you, it's that like, you know, just snap out of it. Just, you know, you can do it like it's something you're choosing to experience. Right, right. And that is so sad because you're not going to go up to somebody who has a flu and say, just feel better. Right. You know there's going to be steps involved, and that's the same with mental health. We need to just help those suffering and enable them, empower them to advocate for themselves. And I think that's going to be the biggest start. Chris, you have a previous background in law enforcement. Has that career helped you to work with your patients? Have you been able to tie the two professions together? Yes, tremendously. I think having a background in law enforcement, first of all, it provides you with the confidence to go out and deal with people just in general. And it also allows you to see how there's a disconnect with how law enforcement treats mental illness. There's such a huge lack of training when it comes to dealing with mental illness in law enforcement. And I think that has empowered me to go out and, you know, kind of just learn more about it. So my fellow colleagues in law enforcement who I'm still in contact with, I kind of, you know, 
help them out to understand it. So when they go out on a call, when they're dispatched, they don't just go out seeing something as black and white. There is a huge gray area involved that they have to recognize, and that allows them to treat people a little bit differently. And that's so important. And everything that you're saying, we, we all need to really become aware of these issues. We need to advocate for those we love. And it's something that, you know, it's time we really all understand and and just stop, like we were saying, telling people, ah, just get over this. This is your choice. So I'm really happy that you were here today to raise awareness and the importance of advocacy. If you'd like to get more information about Nothing But Advice, the new app that Chris is an advisor for, you can visit nothingbutadvice.com. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you so much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. National EMS Week runs May 19th to the 25th. It's a time to publicize safety and to honor the dedication of those who provide the life-saving services of Medicine's Frontline. Joining us today to talk about this important work is Michael Greco, Vice President of FDNY EMS Local 2507. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Mike, I want to start off with something that's been occurring recently. In the news, there's been a lot of buzz about a comment made by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio in reference to a pay disparity between fire department, police, and EMS. He said, the work is different. Why do you think that comment has generated such a backlash? Unfortunately, uh, throughout history, the word different or people being different has been an underlying way for people to treat others differently. Um, It's to justify our pay disparity and use the term different is something that hit our members and actually nationally EMTs and paramedics. It it hit us to the core. Mm -hmm. We're a hardworking, um, overworked, overstressed, underpaid service. And when you have the mayor of one of the largest cities in the world turning around saying that he understands that our work is different and that's why we get paid less, that's how we took it. And it, it, it was not a good statement from him. And we, we are looking to change that pay structure throughout the city of New York. Mike, for people who may not know about this, what type of a pay difference are we talking about? We're talking about $30,000 top pay between an EMT and other first-line responders in New York City. So, obviously, the work is different, I mean, because it's just as important. I mean, if I'm sitting in my house and someone's breaking in, the police department is, you know, they're my saviors for the day. If my home is on fire, the fire department. If I'm having a heart attack, all of you. So... I just don't understand really what he was trying to say with that type of a statement. We don't understand it either. Um, one thing you'll notice if, you, if you've ever seen any of our campaign, we make it a point to emphasize this. We are not above any other first responder. We also believe we're not below any other first responder. All of our work is important and all of our work is different. You, like you just said, police have their role firefighters have their role and EMS has our role. We all work hand in hand, especially when disaster strike, whether it be natural or man-made, we are on the front lines putting ourselves in harm's way, seeing some of the worst things that life has to offer and to not be able to pay our rent in a city as big and as funded as New York is quite frankly, it's, it's a terrible look on how you treat your first responders. And he has national aspirations uh, for presidential ideas and to go around and try and be president of our country while treating his first responders the way he does is appalling. Have these words reached across the country? Are they having an impact nationally? I believe where they are. We have gotten letters of support um, from all over. We've received calls from multiple departments, as well as national EMS conferences, um, EMS World, which is one of the largest national conferences. This topic was part of the keynote speakers. So to have 
our service, our industry really understand the fight and being a New Yorker, helping to lead that fight to get the word out there and make people understand that the people who are showing up to save your life are working two, three jobs, 12, 16, 24 hours a day. We, we're tired. We're not seeing our own families, but yet here we are giving 100% of our time, effort, and knowledge to save the life of people we've never met. Mike, can you explain the way these services can be structured? For example, here in New Jersey, my son's a firefighter, and in some of the cities here, the EMS workers fall under the fire department. Firemen are EMS techs, and they are firefighters. How can it be set up differently? Like in New York, you had told me it's a different structure to it. There is a different structure. Um, FDNY separates their firefighters from their EMS. That is different throughout the country. There are some services out there that have a separate EMS track and fire track, and then there's other combined services. Being a city as large as we are in the history of the FDNY, I mean, they have over 150 years of service to the city, and at the time they started, EMS was not a part of that. EMS came in together as a service 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So we were our own New York City EMS. So when you get to a service as large as we are, I mean, combined firefighters and EMS, we have over 17,000 members. So if you have a service that has 11,000 on one side, 5,000, or depending on what the numbers are at the time, to integrate that is a logistical probably nightmare as well as a financial cost to now all of a sudden have everybody who comes into play be part of one union to um, have the multiple training. Some people, if you're a firefighter, you might not want to do EMS runs. And if you're an EMS worker, you might not want to do fire runs. And I don't blame anybody. I always make a joke. Every first responder has a screw loose, (laughs) but we just have different screws loose. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, You know, when most people are running away, you guys are running in. And and I can't say enough about the type of work that you do. So for someone who might be interested in the career, what type of training is required to become an EMS worker? So to become an EMT, the average course is about three months. That is all depending on the timing. It could be up to six months if you get the amount of hours in for the week. Uh, or it could be an accelerated course if you double or triple the amount of hours you need. But on average, it's about a three-month course. That includes clinical rotations, that includes uh, field rotations, pathophysiology, um, all, all your, your studying. So that is what um, it requires to be an EMT. And then a paramedic is exponentially more in our training because on some services, it's considered an associate degree. So it could be as long as a two-year process. For the FDNY itself, um, I was lucky when I became a paramedic because the FDNY did train me to be, the, be a paramedic. Once I was an EMT for them, I got into their class. Now, that's a nine-month accelerated class. It's 40 hours a week. Um, classrooms and clinical rotations, hospital rotations, and that took nine months. So you can imagine um, not everybody has that opportunity where my job was to learn to become a paramedic. For those people out there who must go to outside schooling and do all those hours, they need to do that while working a full-time job. So if it took me nine months at 40 hours a week to become a paramedic, those people who are in EMS who struggled through two, three jobs to get their hours in, it's nothing short of a miracle that they're able to to get this training. It's intense. So Mike, tell us about EMS Week. What is the objective? EMS Week was uh, put together to celebrate nationally EMS Week and what EMS does for the community. Um, This year's theme is called Beyond the Call, and every year they have different themes so every service it's up to them to kind of use that rallying point and create posters to create events um so this year's ems week theme beyond the call is a good way to our goals to help people understand what exactly beyond the call means when we show up um either it's 
the, the worst day of somebody's life, sometimes it's the happiest. You get to deliver a child. There is stress-related. There is um, post-traumatic stress. There is events that lead to family issues. And that's all the stuff for me that is beyond the call. Uh, the safety, the injury rate amongst first responders, the injury rate to EMS professionals are one of the highest per capita because while our deaths may be lower than other first responders, our injury rate, back issues, broken legs, sprained ankles, our assaults, um, we get assaulted more as a first responder than most others. So these are all the things that our EMTs, paramedics, our supervisors deal with on a daily basis. And it's more than just sitting in the ambulance. Um, if you ever want to really insult an EMT or a paramedic, call them an ambulance driver. Mm-hmm. It really just narrows down um, to one statement and it devalues what an EMT, a paramedic, and the knowledge they have. And what can all of us do to support the work of our responders? The first one, first is thank them. Um, you see uh, EMT or paramedic, understand what they go through. Uh, it's a holiday. They're away from their family. A simple thank you, um, and that's to any first responder, is, is well appreciated. And then further than that, if people wanted to be proactive, getting in touch with your council members in New York City, you know, there's council members, that they're, they're very supportive, and letting them know that the pay disparity that every service is paying their EMTs and paramedics um, is a disservice. We have an, an, e, an EEO component as well with EMS. EMS is one of the most diverse services in any first responder. We have in New York City, 51% non-white. We have 35% female. Um, we're a highly diverse group. So when you look at that and you see that these members are making so much less than their counterparts and first responders, having the public get out there and let their council members know that this should not be tolerated. Um, our members work hard. They deserve to be paid the same rate. And they deserve to be able to live in the city that they serve. Um, Most of our members have to move out of city because at $50,000 top pay for an EMT, you can't afford the rents in New York City, let alone save to buy a house, put your kids through college. So if the public was to join us in this campaign and to really get to the mayor and get to uh, their councilman. And it's not just New York City. Everybody should understand that when you see an ambulance drive by, 100% that person is not being paid the rate they need to be paid to survive. Mike, where can our listeners go to get more information? We have um, a campaign that we started. It's called emsworkisdifferent.com. We have uh, a bunch of testimonials on there. That is always one place uh, that people can go to find out at least the status of our um, campaign. And uh, the National EMS Week, if you just simply go to Google EMS Week 2019 and put in your city, they will be able to tell you different events. Um, For New York City, FDNY, we have an EMS competition uh, that goes on at 9 Metrotech, the FDNY headquarters. Um, We have different pop-up barbecues. We have different opened-up EMS stations. So if you're sitting in your neighborhood and between the May 19th to May 25th, check out a Google of your own EMS station and find out if there's any events that's always a way to help. And uh, as far as helping our members, we have um, the EMS Help Fund, which we started between Local 2507 and 3621. And that fund is a 5013C comp- uh, charity that we started to help EMTs and paramedics during catastrophic events, whether they be on the job or off the job. I mean, just recently we had a six alarm fire that a couple of our paramedics lost everything. And that fund is what we use to help them as well as other funds. So that is about a year old that we're starting and we're trying to make it more of a national. And the goal for that EMS help fund would be to one day self-sustain and be a nationally recognized and we can help EMTs and paramedics, not only throughout New York City, but we'd love to be able to help EMTs and paramedics throughout the country. Mike, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? EMTs and paramedics are some of the hardest working um, men and women in most municipalities. I would like the recognition from not only 
our public officials, but the public as well, to really understand and appreciate the work that our members do. When your time of need comes and you dial 911, if you're a religious person, when you're saying a prayer for God to come down and help, God works in this way. They send EMTs and paramedics. We save lives. And that's what we want to take away from this. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and for raising awareness about what EMS workers do and the challenges you face. Um, As you said, your work goes far beyond the call. So thank you for being here and thank you for your service. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How do you make new friends? Hi, I'm Suzanne Tregenza-Moore, mother, wife, business coach, skincare consultant, and middle-aged woman. I'm on a path to rediscovering who I am and what I want, and I invite you to take the journey with me. It is said that your success is the direct result of the success of the people you spend the most time with. I believe that extends to mindset, attitude, and well-being. If you consider this and find yourself wanting to shift your tribe, you may also realize that as an adult, you're out of the habit of developing new friendships. Here are a few steps to get you going on a successful path. Create a clear picture of the type of person you're looking for. I recently decided I was looking for someone who is positive, upbeat, and who doesn't complain. Then identify how you can find them. For me, the answer was to start a book club focusing on positive mindset books. Those who are focused on reading them are usually working to improve themselves and to focus on gratitude. This may not be what you're looking for, but the steps are the same. Create the vision of what you want and recognize where you will find it. Want to create new friendships? The power is within you. Join me at SuzanneTMore.com to learn more about my journey and midlife reinvention. It is no secret that many people wait until after the holiday season concludes before finally deciding to move on with their lives and commence the divorce process. My name is Robert Epstein, and I'm a partner with the family law firm of Ziegler, Zemsky, and Resnick in Livingston, New Jersey. Whether because of the family and the children, financial reasons, a hope that the marriage can be saved, an overwhelming schedule that leaves no time to act on this decision, or something else, each person has a rationale for why and when they are finally prepared to move forward. Oftentimes, people look at a decision to move forward with a divorce in the new year as a sort of New Year's resolution, which makes sense when considering that a resolution is designed to help you improve something in your life. A few things that you can consider doing to move forward are, number one, find the right divorce lawyer. Number two, outline your divorce goals. Number three, gather your financial documents. And number four, rely on that support system and professionals to help you get through a difficult time. With these steps in mind, the new year will present a clean slate and a chance to make positive changes in our lives that we might not have otherwise been ready for. Hopefully you will be better prepared when the time is right to make that decision for you. For more information, please contact me at Siegler, Zemsky, and Resnick, 973-533-1100 or robert at zzrlaw.com. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. The mark of a truly educated person is an open mind. These impactful words were shared by one of my mentors early in my education career. I have used this phrase and sought out examples of such persons over the last many years. Yesterday, I met another truly educated person while visiting a wellness center and meeting with the physician who owns it. She described her journey as a physician and business owner, mentioning the joys as well as the challenges of running a healthcare practice in America today. After reaching out to coaches and having soul-searching meetings with her staff, she came to a couple of conclusions. This is Vito Mazzi, your cash flow specialist with Kinem.com. The doctor made several new decisions, but she felt that the biggest one was to focus on the strengths that she and her team possess. Their main strength? They offer fantastic wellness care to their patients as she was trained to do. Among areas in need of improvement, which she has decided to outsource, dealing with financials like insurance claims and accounts receivables. She actually had called me in to assist, and now I'm helping her. And yes, I can help you too. Visit Kinnam.com forward slash Vito hyphen Mazza or call 800-850-5110. 
Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Have you deleted your ex's number? Hi, I'm Julianne Cantarella, matchmaker, dating coach, and owner of New Jersey's Matchmaker. I work with commitment-minded singles, helping them to totally transform their love lives by taking the mystery and confusion out of dating so they can create the relationship they desire and deserve. As a relationship expert for over 13 years, I've seen the many ways women have sabotaged themselves when trying to create a healthy relationship. So does this sound like you? Do you still have your ex's number in your contact? Or have you liberated yourself and taken control by deleting his number? If you do have his number in your contacts, I ask you why. Could it be you are subconsciously sabotaging yourself by keeping his number? I'm sure you realize this allows him to contact you whenever he feels like it. I'm going to be straightforward and tell you, if you haven't deleted, then you will be defeated. Somehow, subconsciously, you are hanging on to the romanticized notion of what could be. He is your ex for a reason. You need to honor that by deleting his number and moving forward, making room for a more appropriate partner. To learn more about me and how I can help you transform your love life to create the relationship you desire and deserve, visit me, Julianne Cantarella, at New Jersey's Matchmaker.com. Soul by Rain is produced from various seed flowers. Its primary ingredients hail from the black cumin seed and the black raspberry seed. These two combine to provide a powerful antioxidant barrier against the devastating effects of stress. Soul by Rain has been hailed as one of the most important anti-aging antioxidants ever discovered. Soul is an anti-inflammatory and it helps prevent and repair radical damages for a healthier heart. Get your soul by calling your rain partner, Elmina Ziza, at 973-722-1. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.